let's get into it. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, which I hope you do, why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5 and 6. Get that ready. Um, thank you for all the nice feedback from last week's sermon. Uh, I know it was a lot to get through and we're not slowing down today. Um, it looks like, yeah, so we're going to be back in two weeks, which is great. Um, you will need to get tickets. I can't wait to see you all. It's, it, yeah, it's just beautiful. This church, it, you know, I don't know what my theology on all this is, but it carries the presence of God, right? It's a thin place between heaven and earth. And so we look forward to having you back in the building. I note this week that the period of Israel's history that we are studying continues to make the news. I mean that literally. I went on to CNN.com this week to get my little dose of international news and I came across this headline on CNN. This week on Thursday, luxury 2,700-year-old toilet discovered in Jerusalem. <laughs> As the saying goes, I, sh I, I kid you not. <laughs> and it reminded me that I missed something in my introduction to Isaiah last week. And that was that when Isaiah wrote, it was an unprecedented time of prosperity in the southern kingdom of Israel. And that's actually going to be relevant today. Anyhow, the article noted... Uh, how archaeologists discovered the limestone toilet dating back to the kings of Judah, which is when Isaiah wrote. And the article notes that the toilet was designed with comfortable seating and a hole in the middle leading down to a septic tank. This apparently being the height of decadence in this era, having a toilet inside your house. So there you go. Archaeology agreeing with Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ. There you go. That interested nobody. Alright. <laughs> was that good? I thought it was. Okay, thank you. There's some people feigning interest here. Alright, today we're going to look at chapter 5 and 6 of Isaiah. Get your Bibles ready. We're going to look at it in reverse order. Chapter 6 and then chapter 5. Take some notes. If you don't take notes, it will go in one ear and go out the other. If Alright, so I was saying, today we're going to look at chapters 5 and 6 of Isaiah in reverse order, and let me encourage you to take some notes. So, chapter 6 is the call of Isaiah as God's prophet, and then in chapter 5, we find what is called the Song of the Vineyard. Now, I'm probably biting off more than I can chew, but that is Isaiah it is loaded with great teaching. Now, in case you missed last week, uh, just to quickly recap our intro to Isaiah, we are looking at the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament that was written around 740 BC. Uh, it was written to the southern kingdom of Israel where we find the city of Jerusalem and they were under threat from the Assyrian Empire that had already wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah's message links this threat to the state of God's people in relation to to their having broken their covenant with God. Uh, remember Deuteronomy 30 last week. God makes a covenant with his people after the Exodus. Uh, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. 
Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you that this day you will certainly be destroyed. So what Isaiah 1 uh, talks about is how the people of God are like children who have forgotten their parents and rebelled against them. They have broken this covenant relationship. And what's at the heart of this charge that God is making against them? Well, their religious practices and their worship has become meaningless because while they observe these rituals, they're not doing what is right. They're not seeking justice and they are oppressing the vulnerable in their midst. So they've forgotten that at the heart of the covenant was to be different to the other nations. And they were called to value and to care for all people, to be generous, compassionate, and just. So it's a pretty full-on start to the book. Uh, but there is also these grace notes, this offer from God. And it's linked again to the covenant. Uh, God's constant gracious nature is on display. If they repent, if they start doing the right thing, they will be blessed. But if they continue to resist and to rebel, they will be devoured by the sword. And I think the message to us from week one was, how are we bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? You know, now that we are part of the covenant family of God, how does our lives reflect his goodness to us? Uh, what does it mean to be faithful children? So we get to Isaiah's call, and then we will do the soul of the vineyard to conclude. Now, we find Isaiah's call to be a prophet in chapter 6, so let's just spend some brief moments on it. Um, unlike in the other two major prophets of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, their call to be a prophet is found in the very first few chapters of those books. Um, but in Isaiah, we have five chapters of prophetic teaching before we get to Isaiah's call. And scholars have come to a profound conclusion as to why this is so. They have no idea. <laughs> so it's a bit weird. I don't know why Isaiah's call is not at the start of the book, it's in chapter 6. But it is a great chapter and often referred to when people respond to a call of God in their own lives. So open up your Bibles, chapter 6, from verse 1 of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings there, covering their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away from you, your sin is atoned for. 
And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. What a great message. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah is given this vision of God, his majesty, his holiness, his glory. And the thing that I'm struck by in Isaiah's response is it is proportionate to what he has seen. In light of who God is, it becomes clear to Isaiah who he is. Are you with me? In light of the holiness and the glory of God, Isaiah realizes that he is a man of unclean lips. And it's funny how Revelation often works like that. When you get a true picture of God, it often brings your own life into stark contrast with God's majesty. You know, that was certainly how I became a Christian. I remember uh, at the very end of high school reading the Gospel of John, being struck by Jesus and his majesty and his holiness and and just how different he was and how beautiful he was. And that encounter of Jesus, that encounter with God, brought my own life into perspective. And I was drawn to Christ as I was confronted with my own failings. So Isaiah sees God high and exalted, seated on a throne, surrounded with angels, declaring him holy, his glory filling the earth. And so the enormity of encountering God and serving him dawns upon him. So he realizes his own failures. Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So he is humble. He recognizes not just his own sin, but he actually, in doing so, recognizes the sin of all of the people of God. He identifies himself with everyone else. Um, I know that when I preach, one of the things that I try and be very careful about is not preaching to you, but to us, to we, to even me. I try and be very careful with my language. One of the great privileges of my life is that I've been set apart by this church uh, for ministry, and that includes the studying and the preaching of the Word of God. And it's a very humbling thing to do, and I genuinely mean that. And I often, Victoria often sees this, I'll be preparing and I'll just come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, And it's often in relation to my own shortcomings, in relation to a very holy God and the life that he has called us to. So please, if there is ever any strength to my preaching, know that it is probably because I have been convicted myself of my own need to respond. Anyhow, unsurprisingly, his confession is an opportunity for God To do what? We've already seen it in Isaiah chapter 1. God displays his mercy and gracious character. And he forgives him. There is something we see repeated over and over in the life of Jesus. As people encounter the word made flesh, God amongst us, as they get a revelation of God, they too are often struck by their failings. Um, Think Zacchaeus the tax collector. Think the sinful woman at dinner with the Pharisees. They are not met with judgment from God. That's right, you rotten, dirty scoundrel, get out of my presence. We are met with mercy and grace as we confess our sin. So it says in verse 7 that Isaiah's guilt is taken away, his sin is atoned for. And that brings us to the final part of Isaiah's call as a prophet. The voice of the Lord says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
right? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. It's a wonderful moment of scripture. So the calling of prophet to being an advocate on behalf of God to bring both judgment and the hope of redemption, Isaiah puts his hand up and he says, I'm available. Now it's worth noting that this will be a difficult task that Isaiah is responding to. Uh, ministry is not glamorous and it often comes at a personal cost. As you will know, many of the prophets weren't greeted with reverence or their messages kindly received. Most were stoned to death. You know, most prophets, true prophets, um, are acclaimed for their prophetic work about 200 years after their death. <laughs> Very rarely will the people of God or the rich and the powerful respond to the call back to covenantal faithfulness to turning from idols and to seeking justice when it is preached to them face to face. And so the prophetic calling is a, a rough ride. And while it isn't recorded in the Bible, later Jewish tradition suggests Isaiah was martyred by being sawn into under King Manasseh. So here I am, Lord. <laughs> Send me. With that cherry side note, I wonder what you are being called to by God. Uh, certainly the call of the prophet in the biblical sense is something to enter into with godly fear and trepidation. But there are all kinds of things, aren't there not, that we are called into in this life as ordinary Christians, that's me and you, following an extraordinary God. Not just ministry, like I am involved in, but with all kinds of tasks and seeing his kingdom and righteousness get planted here on earth. I can't help at this age but think of one of the, um, the, 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 the true Christian heroes, William Wilberforce. And you may know his story from the film Amazing Grace. So if you haven't seen that, I recommend you watch it. Uh, Wilberforce lived about 200 years ago at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. The horrors and injustices of this era need no explanation. Wilberforce, like many of us, were born into wealth and privilege. And like many of his era, he lived comfortably with the reality of the slave trade that was enriching the new colonies in the Americas. Something amazing happened at the age of 26. Wilberforce was born again and he became an evangelical Christian. And not long after that, a group of anti-slave trade activists convinced him to take on the cause of the abolition of slavery. And so as a member of parliament in the UK from a very young age, think this is the era of William the Pitt. Is that his name? I think this is his name. He worked tirelessly for the next 46 years <coughs> campaigning to end slavery from his Christian principles. And he was met with defeat after defeat, much scorn and ridicule for taking on this cause. And then, 46 years after he began in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act was finally passed, and he died three days later. <laughs> and he's buried at Westminster. Abbey in the UK, in London. 
Wilberforce is rightly remembered as a prophetic voice to a nation that turned a blind eye towards the slave trade and profited it from its very existence. Like Isaiah, he put his hand up for a great cause in calling his nation to repent and change its ways, and it was his life's work among many other amazing social causes. So what are you called to? Grasping the majesty, the holiness of God and his glory. What are you called to? And Isaiah reminds us that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. He is the one who forgives us and then sends us into the world. You don't need to have your act together before you can act for God. Because it is his mercy that propels us into joining him in bringing his kingdom on earth. Like Wilberforce, like Isaiah, where will your life be a message that stands on behalf of the oppressed, voiceless, and powerless? You know, and even here in this church, I think of guys like Adam, who's on the board of International Justice Mission, that is seeking to end modern-day slavery around the world today. I think of uh, one of our elders, Greg Beach, whose charity, Homes of Hope International, stands alongside the poorest of the poor in the most desperate places. And you may want to get involved in caring for widows and orphans and children of sex workers through Greg's charity, Homes of Hope. I think of Hannah, who has worked for Hope Street in their Women at Risk projects. You might be doing anything. You might be an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, a business person. But you are called to stand on behalf of God and be a voice for the voiceless. All right, well, let's just shift backwards a chapter now to Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard. And I guess the link to his calling is us asking again, what was his message? So let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 5. Hopefully you've got your Bible still open. Follow along with me in Isaiah chapter 5. Now we find in chapter 5 of Isaiah what is titled, The Song of the Vineyard. And it looks and it sounds a lot like one of the parables that Jesus told in the New Testament. And again, there is the link and the influence of Isaiah on Jesus. And so we'll get to Jesus talking about the vine and the branches in the Gospel of John. Uh, points to anyone who can tell me what chapter of John that is in the comments. But like last week, let's go through this wonderfully challenging section of Scripture. So Isaiah 5.1, speaking on behalf of God, Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Isaiah starts with a pretty simple picture. God is this owner who has planted a vineyard on a fertile hillside. It is a picture, of course, of God establishing his people into the promised land post the Exodus. And he plants them in a good land. Remember the, the land of milk and honey. And what are a vineyard meant to do? They are meant to produce good fruit that is a blessing to them and to all around them. That's why you plant a vineyard. 
You know, it's funny, I remember as a kid being dragged to vineyards and with my parents on holidays. It was like the worst thing you'd ever want to do. And now I'm at this age where every holiday, all I want to do is go wine tasting <laughs> in vineyards. Anyhow, we are told that God has cleared it of stones. Okay, think about Israel's history. He has cleared it of stones. He has planted it with the choicest of vines. God has done all the work. And it is such a blessing. So verse 3. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good groups, why did it yield only bad? So speaking through this parable, God asks his people, what more could have I have done for you? You know, what more could have I done for you? And yet when he looks for good fruit, all he finds is bad. Instead of glorious, righteous, wonderful fruit that is a blessing, the crop that has been produced is a stinker. Right? The grapes are foul. They are rotten. They are good for nothing. So verse 5 to 7, God says, The vineyard, his people, will no longer be protected. Instead, they will be judged. Verse 6, briars and thorns will grow there. Why? Because we are told, verse 7, he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. That's a, a great scripture. Now, a bit like the, 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 the Jesus in the parable of the sower that Clayton preached on two weeks ago. There is an explanation for the parable. And this time, what the bad fruit like, looks like is described as seven woes. We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, but it does include this pertinent one for our age in verse 20. This could, this, this could be the scripture that defines our times. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. <laughs> you know, that speaks to a people who have lost their moral compass. A people who have literally decreed evil is what is good. And what is good is now evil. I don't think you have to let your mind wander too far to think about where in our society we see echoes of this. Celebrations of immorality normalization of what for centuries has been considered to be sin. But I want to focus on the first woe in verse 8, because I think of all the woes, it is probably the most pertinent to us. How is preaching a bit of judgment? <laughs> I think this woe is the most pertinent to us, because living in one of the wealthiest areas, in the wealthiest city, in the wealthiest country on earth, and oh boy, I think I may be preaching to myself again. Let's get that inclusive judgment language firing. Verse 8, what does the Lord say to us? Verse 8. He says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ouch. Now, what does Isaiah have in mind here in regards to this judgment about greed? Well, again, it goes back to the terms of their covenant with God, who has rescued and redeemed them, and he has given them a good law. And this time we think about the year of Jubilee laws found in Leviticus 25. Is everyone still with me? Yeah. Good. All right. This was in Leviticus. On the 49th year, what did God require of his people? 
Well, in the 49th year in the calendar, when the inequalities of society were to be evened out with the return of property to poorer families. It says in Leviticus 25, 23, that God owns the land and thus the rich would return bought land from the poor, ensuring that massive inequalities never would get entrenched into the society of the people of God. And of note, too, there was a law, go back six chapters, Leviticus 19, 9 to 10. Let me read this one. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So, again, the idea being leave some of your wealth, of your crop, to the poor for harvest. Don't just give it away. Make them work still so that there's dignity to their to their lives, but leave the edges of your field for them to harvest. Don't go over your crop a hundred times so that everything is picked. Be generous. Don't be so greedy that everything you produce is kept for you. So the woe of Isaiah 5.8 does not now come into perspective. If you add house to house and field to field, what room could there possibly be to look after those less fortunate than you? And surely in adding to your ever-expanding land and property holdings, where have they ignored the mandate of Jubilee in stopping inequalities in the family of God? Now, I would suggest we probably need to apply our Christian imaginations to this part of being faithful covenant keepers. Because most of us aren't farmers, and even in Manly, few of us own multiple homes, if any. But here is the principle that Isaiah railed against. It is the insatiable appetite for more and more wealth without ever setting aside a good proportion of your wealth for those less fortunate than you. Let me say that again. It is the insatiable appetite for more and more wealth without ever setting aside a good proportion of your wealth for those less fortunate than you. The woe is to those whose lifestyles rise with their incomes. Right? Get a little pay rise, buy more expensive wine. Get a better job, buy more and more properties but never first setting aside to give to God and the poor with what God has entrusted you with. All right, let me say this a little more pointedly. Woe to you if you never out of your abundance set aside a generous and sacrificial amount to give away. You are not reflecting your heavenly Father who graciously gives to those who ask, and who provides for all your needs. So remember, let me encourage you as faithful covenant keepers, as the children of God, to take generosity seriously. And if there are some of you listening who have failed in this area, we need to repent and start giving generously and sacrificially. 
Start with your giving and then work out your lifestyle afterwards. And I've got to say, there are wonderful examples within our community who I have seen demonstrate covenantal faithfulness in regard to giving that is an inspiration of Christian faith. Now, obviously, I'm not going to name names, but I think of one older couple at this church who, as far as I can tell, throughout their lives have just had an incredible gift to make money. But this has been matched, from what I can tell, by their giving to this church, to multiple ministries, and over many years to charities like Homes of Hope, who care for the poor. So if we're going to reflect God, when we are blessed, as promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham, we are to be a blessing to all other families on earth. And finally, doesn't that not bring us to Jesus? Who, as we will see, very much identifies with Isaiah. And the image of the vine is found all through the New Testament. You'll most likely know the image of the vineyard and the vine through John chapter 15, in which Jesus declares, I am the vine and you are the branches. In Jesus, well, we meet the fulfilment of what the people of God were always called to be. The fruitful one, the true vine of Israel, is Jesus our Lord and Saviour. It doesn't get better than this, guys. And like Isaiah, what does he say? John 15, 2, Every branch that bears no fruit will be cut off. But verse 5, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Does that now make sense? In light of Isaiah? Jesus is what the people of God could never be. He produces the righteousness and justice in his life. The fruit of his life, the crop, the grapes are not stinkers, they are good. It is his life. He loves, he blesses, he gives, he produces fruit. He is a glimpse of the vineyard as God intended it to be planted here on earth. And what he calls you and I to do is to remain in him. And this is covenantal language. Stay faithful and close and connected to the one who can produce the blessings of good fruit. And you will too. And you as a branch will bear good fruit. John 15, 16. Manly life, I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Let's close there. We have had the call of Isaiah, we've had the song of the vineyard. And I'm sure if you're anything like me, the Lord has been speaking to you through Isaiah 5 and 6. Only 60 chapters to go. <laughs> Responding to the call of God in your life. And as the people of God bearing fruit in our lives and keeping with the covenant, generous, set apart, and righteous for the Lord. Amen.